Welcome to the Digital Ecology Podcast. Here we create a window into the backstory of technology adoption in England's National Health Service. I'm your host, Victoria Betton. Today on the Digital Ecology Podcast, I'm really pleased to be joined by Joe Robinson. So Joe's a professor and head of suicide research who leads origin suite of research programs around suicide prevention in Melbourne, Australia. Joe currently coordinates a whole range of research projects in collaboration with Australian and overseas universities. And she focuses our knowledge about the best approaches to reduce suicide risk amongst young people. So really important um, programs of work that are really focused on co-design and collaboration with young people. It's really amazing work that she does. And we know that many mental health difficulties begin in early teens, so it's imperative that we have good, effective support for young people. And young people spend a lot of their lives online, so we need to be thinking about their online as well as their offline lives. In the UK, there's a crisis of children and young people's mental health services. According to NHS figures, the number of under-18s referred to child and adolescent mental health services has risen by over 50% since 2019, and many of those young people are languishing on waiting lists. Young Minds is calling for urgent government action to support young people, to improve services for young people. So this agenda couldn't be uh, more important. I've got a real interest in this topic because back in 2018, I had a book published, which was a guide for practitioners on young people's use of social media way before TikTok or Snapchat, but one which encouraged health and care professionals to be more resourceful in how they support young people and how they talk with young people about their online lives. So I'm really, really happy to have Joe here with me today and really looking forward to our conversation. So welcome, Joe. It's so lovely to have you with me here today from Melbourne. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So, Joe, I think we met back in 2018 and I was writing a book. It was a guide for practitioners about young people's use of social media. And you invited me over to Melbourne to speak about the book. And I think we've got some alignment because my approach, along with James Woolard, who I co-wrote it with, was about, okay, so this stuff is here anyway. How can we use it in more positive ways? Or how can we be resourceful as health and care practitioners supporting people with their mental health? And I think there's a nice alignment with the approach you take in the work you do. That's exactly right. So we kind of came at all of this because what we were hearing across the sector, certainly here in Australia, but really more broadly, was that social media was a big problem when talking about suicide and self-harm in young people. I, I lead a suicide prevention research group, so that's kind of my area of work. And people were very concerned about the potential harms of social media. But actually what we were hearing from young people was that that social media, they wanted to see social media as part of the solution. And, and we can talk a bit more about this, but it was filling all sorts of gaps for them. And that kind of dominant paradigm, I guess, which was we should, you know, stop young people talking about suicide on social media platforms just wasn't resonating with young people. And it also just wasn't going to work, you know, as well as I do. Young people don't necessarily like being told what to do by adults. And, you know, our view really was that social media is not going anywhere. So we need to engage with it, really, and look at how we can use this as a force for good, as opposed to just conceptualizing it as the problem. 
And we'll get more into that in a moment. But I just want to take you back, actually, because you talked about hearing from young people. And one of the things I was really struck by when I spent some time with you and your team was how much you've co-designed understanding the problem and working towards a solution with young people. And you have this like stunning facility called Origin, which is both a clinical services, but also a research facility, which you've co-designed with young people. And I sort of think the environment is so important in what it says to young people about how valued they are. Could you just say a little bit about Origin, maybe paint a bit of a picture for it, of it rather, and could you say a bit about how young people have been involved both in Origin and maybe in your programme as well? Yeah, definitely. So maybe the first thing that I'll say is we are really lucky to have the facility that we've got and that you came to visit us at, but it wasn't always that way. And so I've been at Origin for nearly 20 years now. And when I first got there, it was really a series of kind of porter cabins, really dilapidated porter cabins across the site. And they were really falling down. There was, we had possums in the roofs. In fact, we had holes in the roofs. We had possums' tails literally hanging out in our office through the wall space. And through a lot of kind of advocacy and lobbying work, and we were lucky enough to get funding and to build or to develop the premises that we've got now, which is really the state of the art youth mental health center, I suppose. In, on, our, on the Parkville site in, in Melbourne. And it does really, I think you're absolutely right when you say it makes a bit of a statement about the importance that we're giving to this issue. And a lot of the funding came from the state government and it was very valued. It meant a lot to, I think, people working in the field, but particularly to people using the service, that they were worthy or perceived to be worthy of such an investment. So I think it was, we were really lucky to have the facility that we've got. To take you back a step further, so Origin is, as you say, it's a youth mental health service. It's a complex beast, Origin. So we offer clinical services to young people aged 12 to 25 across the north and west part of Melbourne, which is a really kind of fast-growing, densely populated, fairly socioeconomically deprived part of Melbourne, very multicultural. And as I say, it's kind of a long, it's a big growth corridor, so there's a lot of development going on in the region and high levels of need when it comes to mental health. So we operate those clinical services. We do that through a whole series of headspace centers. And I'm sure your listeners, certainly your Australian listeners will be very familiar with headspace, but it's a a youth mental health service that is really for kind of a one-stop shop, if you like, at kind of primary care end for young people experiencing a whole range of, of mental health problems. And we also operate sort of what we call tertiary mental health services that have historically been located within the hospital system. So for young people who are much more chronically and also acutely unwell, including an inpatient facility and what have you. And it was first set up as an early intervention and psychosis service way back when. And we've kind of expanded again to kind of offer services and care to young people with the full spectrum of mental health problems. But the philosophy was really about getting in quickly and early in an attempt to kind of prevent problems getting much worse and chronic and, you know, trying to reduce the level of functional problems that some of those young people would experience through having mental health problems. But we're also part of Melbourne University, so there's a whole research part of Origin as well. And so we're the Centre for Youth Mental Health and we're a research centre affiliated with or part of Melbourne Uni. So all of us researchers are paid by the university and employed by the university. And then what we've got is this kind of central core team at Origin, which is kind of a national centre of excellence in youth mental health, and that all gets funded by the Commonwealth Government. And that really houses a lot of our training, our knowledge translation and training teams, and also our policy and advocacy teams, communication teams, and what have you. And I suppose where we're a bit unique is that what we're able to do is deliver clinical care 
which means that all of our research is really informed by what people on the front line feel is needed in research and where the evidence base is required and also what young people are presenting with and what they want to see. But also our research is kind of, so our clinical services can be informed by research, but our research is also very much informed by those young people that are coming through our doors. And then what we can do is translate the findings of that research back into clinical practice, but also out through training and education programs and into policy through our policy and advocacy teams. So it's it's quite unique in that way. And it does make our research really highly translational, which is one of the things that I, I love about it. The other thing probably that makes Origin is a bit unique is what you mentioned earlier, which is the co-design piece. And that we really do mean it when we say young people are front and center of everything that we do. And co-design is absolutely in our DNA at Origin. So everything, including the building, um, was co-designed with young people. And we really had a whole working group full of young people that were telling us what they wanted to see in the services that they were receiving. So that probably does, those things together do make us a little bit unique, I think. We also have kind of youth lived experience groups that kind of, call, well, there's a group called Platform that have always kind of, you know, done a lot of the advocacy work. They represent, there's young people on there represented from the different clinics that we operate and they have their say in determining how services are operated and delivered across all of our clinics. And we also have young people involved in a very hands-on way in most of the research that we do as well. So yeah, absolutely co-design and youth participation is very much at the heart of, of everything that we do. And the building is absolutely beautiful. You have such good resources. And as you say, it's in a park. So the setting is amazing. So you've talked about how young people have been involved in every aspect of Origins development. When we met, it was still probably early days for Chat Safe, but that's a project that you've been working on for a number of years now. So could you say a little bit about Chat Safe? And, and I'm interested uh, not only in the listener hearing about what Chat Safe does, both in Australia, but also internationally, but also how you've co-designed that programme with young people, what methods you've used and what you've found worked and, and hasn't worked so well. Yeah, absolutely. So I think ChatSafe came about, so for your listeners, ChatSafe is a series of guidelines, evidence-informed guidelines around safe online communication about suicide. And they're accompanied by a social media campaign to disseminate the content of the guidelines. And that's kind of pushed out through various social media platforms. Probably our most prominent one is Instagram. So ChatSafe came about in a couple of different ways, really. So as we said at the very beginning, you know, what, one of the things we were hearing from young people is that they, they did use social media to talk about suicide and self-harm, and they didn't want that taken away from them because they felt it had a whole load of inherent benefits. So I'm sure it's similar in the UK, but actually talking about suicide and self-harm is quite heavily stigmatized here in Australia. It can be hard to know how to talk about that in an acceptable way, in a way where you're not going to be met with judgment and those sorts of things. And it also can be hard to talk to professionals and get help and those kind of things. We've got long waiting lists and all sorts of, you know, all the same problems that mental health services have everywhere in the world. So social media was providing a really important environment for young people to have conversations about suicide and self-harm that they felt they couldn't have in their offline world. So listening to what they were saying, we were very much, well, we can't just take this approach that the rest of the sector is taking, that social media shouldn't be used to talk about suicide and self-harm. Actually, we need to find ways of helping young people have these conversations but helping them keep themselves safe when they do. And again, you'll be familiar um, with guidelines that, that have 
existed for many years now in suicide prevention for mainstream media to help them communicate safely, to help journalists communicate safely about suicide. And so the Samaritans have developed guidelines in the UK, Mindframe have developed guidelines here. But there was really nothing that was developed for social media or with young people in mind. So I guess that's where we started. So we did, because we're crusty old academics, we did a systematic review of the literature and had a look at, you know, what was being done, what, what were some preventative opportunities for social media. And that was kind of throwing up things like, you know, um, as I said, it, it's, social media can be accessible, it can be non-stigmatizing. So it was providing this important environment to talk about um, suicide and self-harm. But we were also finding from the, from the systematic review and also a, a survey that we did that there, w- there were definitely harms or concerns that existed around, um, around how we might talk about suicide online. One of those concerns was what we expected to see, which was people worry about contagion. So people worry about the fact that if we talk about suicide in a particular kind of way, it might influence other people to engage in that kind of behaviour themselves. And that's kind of really the premise underpinning a lot of these sort of guidelines that exist is we want to be careful not to sensationalise or glamorise suicide so that people don't think that might be a good idea to engage in that behaviour themselves. So so we saw that and we kind of expected to see that. But the other thing that we saw that we didn't expect to see was a need for a request for guidance or guidelines around what does safe communication about suicide online look like. And, you know, we were hearing that from our stakeholders, our, our professionals, our academics, our sector colleagues, but we we're also hearing that from young people. They wanted guidance. They wanted to know what safe communication looked and felt like around this topic. So we were like, well, maybe we should develop some guidelines. And I never saw myself as a guideline developer, but that was clearly the gap that the sector, but also young people were sort of saying they needed. So we set about it from the outset with young people. So we did some workshops with young people. We brought on board a digital design and kind of media company to help us do this work, but we did some workshops with young people to look at how they use social media to talk about suicide and self-harm, you know, the ways they use it, the features that they use, the features that they like, the platforms that they used, whether they used um, video content or text-based content, all of those sorts of things. So we started at the very beginning with young people. And what they told us is they used social media to talk about suicide or self-harm in, probably in three different ways. One was to share their own experiences or their own story. One was that they potentially were exposed to suicide-related content that other people had posted. So a friend might have expressed risk or distress online and and they wanted to reach out and they wanted to help, but they didn't know how to and were afraid of doing or saying the wrong thing. And then they encountered this type of content when somebody was, had died by suicide. So whether that was somebody in their own social network or somebody, a celebrity or public figure. So young people were telling us that was how they were using social media for this subject. So what we then did was we did a Delphi expert consensus study, which is a typical study design that you use to develop guidelines. So we went about that by doing a big search of the literature to identify different types of different action items, I suppose, that were actions that people could do or had done to when communicating about suicide online. And the idea is that you develop a couple of panels of experts and then you rate all of those different items. And those items that achieve consensus end up in the guidelines. What was probably, again, a bit unique about the ChatSafe Delphi study was it was the first one to have an expert panel of young people. 
And we felt that was absolutely critical. And we came up against some criticism for doing it. They, people were saying to us, how could young people be experts in suicide prevention? And we were like, how can suicide prevention professionals be experts in social media? You know, this was some years ago and we were all kind of, you know, crusty old folks. And these are young people who are, you know, genuinely use social media in all aspects of their lives. They're also, of course, experts in their own experience. And we thought, how could we possibly, as kind of a bunch of kind of crusty old middle-aged academics, profess to know what best practice looks like when communicating online about suicide? So we had a panel of young people and we had a panel of suicide prevention professionals and what we did was this set of consensus activities that ended up with the chat safe guidelines. We were very proud of them. We were proud of them because young people had been involved since the very beginning in the whole generating the idea, creating the guidelines. They were part of the methodological process. We also had two paid youth advisors on the project from the very start as well, who've been all the way through the project with us. And as I say, we were very proud of them. They were the first in the world and so on and so forth. But there was still a set of guidelines, right? It was still a very, you know, might have been a prettily designed set of guidelines, but it was still a PDF that sat on a youth mental health website. So we then worked with several hundred young people from across Australia to bring the guidelines to life. So what we then did was co-designed a whole suite of social media content that became the foundations for our national campaign. And that's the content that then got rolled out through all the different social media platforms. So young people helped design it, they helped create it, they featured in it. We really felt it was important that young people saw themselves, they felt visible in the campaign, they felt it was meant for them. And so from the very, as I say, from the very outset, young people were kind of intrinsically involved in all of that. We then rolled the campaign out across Australia. We brought Meta, or Facebook as they were then, as partners at the very beginning of all of this. And they loved the guidelines and they then gave us some funding to globalize them. So that's when we were able to roll the guidelines out to translate them and then roll them out in multiple parts of the world. And we partnered with all sorts of different NGOs around the world to help us do that. And what we got them to do was partner with young people. So as far as possible, we were starting to enter into pandemic scenarios by this point. So face-to-face co-design workshops were getting harder to do, but what we... And, and we couldn't travel. But what we did was partnered with these different agencies and they then reached out to young people in their networks to get them to co-design the content for Norway, for Nigeria, for Brazil, for Mexico and so on. So that was kind of the, that's the sort of very beginning, I suppose, of kind of how ChatSafe came about. Well, gosh, so many questions. That's just, it's phenomenal what you've achieved, particularly at an international level. When you were talking, I was just sort of recalling that when I did my sort of research, if you like, my work sort of back in 2018, one of the things I was struck by when I was talking to mental health professionals was an absolute fear of even talking to young people about their use of social media. They'd rather, they just felt like it was Pandora's box. And I wonder, because, you know, this is, it's important to have these guidelines for young people. And it's also important for practitioners working with vulnerable young people to be engaging with them as well. How have you found the response from professionals? And do you think things have changed from my experience back Mm. in 2018 to 2023? Yeah, absolutely. So I think I often recall going back even further than that when I first started in this work and really people were still nervous to say the word suicide out loud, even kind of well-trained like, you know, school psychologists and so on. So, and when we, it's probably fair to say as well that when we started this work, we started it very slowly and very carefully. So there's a whole kind of prequel 
if you like, to chat safe, which involved us going in and doing some work with young people around how they were using social media for this topic. And we did it slowly. We did it carefully. We worked with very small groups. We had psychologists on site because we did worry that we might be opening a bit of a Pandora's box. But to be perfectly honest, the box was well and truly open, right? Young people were having these conversations, whether we as professionals liked it or not, or thought they should or not, or whether. So the only people really who weren't talking about suicide online were us. And we're like, we've got to come to the party here because otherwise young people are really being left unguided and unsupported. And I think us taking that approach was the approach that brought professionals on the journey with us. Um, So we did a lot of consultation actually with the sector here in Australia before we started this work. And we heard a lot of their concerns, which we're able to, because we shared some of those concerns too. We wanted to make sure what we were doing was safe and careful and what have you. Um, so we did a lot of that kind of, a lot of that gradual lead in work, I suppose, if you like. And we did bring the sector very much on the journey with us. I think because as well in its kind of infancy chat was it was a fairly cautious approach. I mean, it was really still a set, just a set of guidelines and a social media campaign to support them. So it was still fairly cautious. We also developed a whole suite of adult-facing resources to go with the guidelines. So we did the youth-facing guidelines first, and then we developed resources for communities that have been impacted by suicide. Um, and I can talk a bit more about that, actually, because that's become quite um, an important piece of work in and of its own right. But they were really designed, as I say, for communities that have been impacted by a suicide of a young person, and they wanted some guidance on how to navigate those online conversations that were happening. We also then developed guidance for educators and for families and carers. And again, that was really to speak to the fact that it's often adults that are really nervous about having these conversations with young people. We're also nervous about the type and the nature of the conversations young people might be having in the online environments because they're invisible to their parents and they're invisible to educators but we know they're having them so it makes us nervous as parents so it makes us nervous as professionals so we we provided some guidance for those adults in young people's lives to help them first of all to reassure them that it can be safe to communicate about suicide and self-harm online and to give them some tips around how to support young people to have those conversations safely so it was a real education piece for those adults too And we also provided some education to them around the types of tools and functionality that some of the platforms have around online safety. Because again, young people are very comfortable in the digital space, adults more so now, but less so back when we were first doing this work. So they didn't necessarily know that TikTok, for example, TikTok didn't even exist when we first developed the guidelines, but TikTok or Snap, you know, have safety centers. They didn't know that they had reporting functionality. They didn't know that they might have functionality which allowed young people to snooze or mute certain types of content or certain people that might not be making them feel very good. So there's a lot of information in there for those adults around that. And hopefully that's been kind of a bit empowering, I think, and, and taken some of the anxiety out of young people having those those conversations. So you're you're sort of educating professionals about how social media works and you're educating young people about mental health literacy effectively so you're sort of coming at it from different angles for both groups so because people often talk about well young people really understand social media so therefore you know they can navigate it but of course health and mental health literacy and digital literacy actually is varied amongst young people as it is amongst the rest of the population um, so as good academics, you'll have been thinking about evidence. There's a lot of resource um, and funding and academic time going into this. How are you measuring impact? Because this is quite amorphous stuff that you're trying to, 
you're trying to get hold of. So how are you measuring? How do you know you're making an impact? Yeah, so it's a good question and it is it has been a bit challenging, but you're right, we are researchers and academics and we're all about generating and building evidence. So we've been testing the chat safe intervention in a few different in a few different ways. So the first thing that we did was we tested it. We did a revamp pilot study, which was a pre-post study. We had just under 200 young people come into the study. And what we did, we assessed them at three different time points. So we assessed them at baseline. We then delivered, I think the first pilot study was a 12-week intervention where they received a 12-week campaign. They got access to a 12-week campaign delivered to them directly through social media, the, a platform of their choice. And we then assess them again at follow-up, so at 12 weeks, and then a few weeks later, I think it was four or six weeks later, I can't quite remember. And what we were assessing there was their confidence, talking safely or talking about suicide online. We were assessing their kind of perceived skill when communicating on and offline about suicide. We were assessing their willingness to intervene against suicide online. So thinking back to that point that young people had told us that they wanted to help their friends but didn't know how to. So we're assessing that. And we also developed a bit of a kind of a matrix, if you like, based on the chat safe guidelines around what online safety and communication looked like. And we were assessing some of those things too. So for example, the chat safe guidelines said if you're going to post about suicide, maybe monitor your post to for comments that are coming up. So we'd ask young people if they were monitoring their posts, for example. So we tested the initial campaign that way and found that it was it was certainly safe. So we were assessing feasibility and safety as well. So we had no harmful or iatrogenic events. So we decided, we determined that it was relatively safe and feasible to deliver a social media campaign to young people about suicide prevention. We also found that young people felt more confident and better equipped to communicate online about suicide. And we also found that they were more likely or, or more willing to intervene against suicide online. So they were some of the key findings from that initial pilot study. We then did some work developing some specific content that was really designed to target people who'd been bereaved by suicide or exposed to suicide. And here we were really thinking about the, the risk potentially of suicide clusters and the fact that a lot of conversations when a death does occur online and we don't necessarily know whether those conversations are helpful or healthy or not. And also some of those young people who are exposed to that suicide might be at risk or themselves or might be vulnerable themselves and might need support or might need help. So we worked with young people, again, to co-design a suite of content that was specifically designed around supporting people who've been exposed to suicide. And we then tested that content in the same way that we've that we tested the first set of content. So we think of this a little bit, and again, this is because we are crusty old academics and kind of public health people. We think about this as, you know, we apply that kind of universal selective indicated framework that's often used to think about public health interventions to this work. So, you know, at the very bottom of the of a pyramid, if you think about this as a pyramid, at the very base of a pyramid, you've got those universal interventions that are designed to target whole populations regardless of the level of risk. And that first pilot study was really testing ChatSafe as a communications campaign, really educating the general population about safe ways to communicate about suicide online. The second study or the second campaign was, this, was more of a selective approach. Here we were honing in on people who might be at elevated risk of suicide because they'd been bereaved by suicide or exposed to a suicide of somebody else in their social network. 
So we were starting to get a little bit more targeted in our approach. And that was because I suppose we were gaining a bit more confidence that ChatSafe was safe and potentially effective. So that was the second study that we did. And that also showed the same results. So we tested it in the same way that we did the first one and it showed the same results. So again, safe, feasible, and potentially effective, particularly around this kind of willingness to intervene and, you know, increase perceived confidence and self-efficacy when communicating online about suicide. So we've done those two studies and they, as I say, gave us a little bit more confidence. We're now testing the universal campaign in a randomized control trial. So if you think about kind of, you know, improving the levels of evidence, we're now, we've done the pilot study, we learned a little bit along the way, and now we're testing it as a trial. So we've got a control group. And so it means that we'll have a bit more confidence in the findings so that if young people improve, the, those outcomes improve as they did last time, we can be a little bit more certain that the improvement is now a result of the intervention as opposed to just the results of time or some other kind of confounding. The next step will be to test it as an indicated intervention. So starting to think about, well, can chat say, because really at the moment, it's still very much a set of guidelines designed to, you know, improve safe communication. Although in fairness, the second study, the second, the postvention campaign and content that's designed for people who've been bereaved by suicide does sort of point people in the direction of help services if they need them. So again, it's getting a little bit more targeted in our response. The final piece of the puzzle will be to test chat safe as an indicated intervention. So we're about to start working with young people who have lived experience of feeling suicidal and mental ill health and will design a suite of campaign content that's specifically targeting that group of young people. So that might include things like psychoeducation. It might include things like direct links to healthcare services to try and overcome some of those barriers around help seeking. And it might include things like safety planning tools or other digital tools or interventions that can be readily delivered through social media platforms. And I guess the philosophy behind all of this is that we know young people don't necessarily find it easy to seek professional help. There's lots of barriers to that. So really what we're trying to do is deliver care and support to young people in the environment where they're already hanging out, not requiring them to go somewhere else. Now, it might mean that those young people do then subsequently, you know, click through the links or what have you and go and seek professional help. And we hope that many of them do. But we are also helping that there'll be this sort of element of it where people can access some of the information, some of the care or some of the tools they need in app rather than have to go somewhere else. So that's a work in progress. We'll kind of, you know, we could talk again in a little while and I'll tell you where we're up to. But that's the piece that we're about to tackle next. Mm, fascinating. And what about differences between young people? Because, you know, there are many, a young heterogeneous group and you've got variety and you've got inequality within Australia. And then you're also taking these guidelines to many different countries around the world, which will have very different ways of talking about mental health and, and presumably talking about suicide. So could you maybe just talk a bit about the diversity challenge or opportunity in the country you're working and then maybe more globally about the differences you've seen in terms of how different cultures might tackle these sorts of issues. Yeah, definitely. So I think we've tried to do this. I'm not sure that we've done a brilliant job of it, to be perfectly candid. But we certainly in that first iteration of the co-design work, we made a really concerted effort to try and engage with different sectors of the population, I suppose, or different groups of young people. And, you know, that's important for all sorts of reasons. As you say, we live in a diverse community. It's important that we meet the needs of 
all of those young people. And we also know that some subpopulations of young people are at elevated risk potentially of, of suicide and self-harm in this country. So we really felt it was important not to ignore that. So we did do some bespoke co-design workshops with different groups of young people. So we worked and we always partnered up along the way with organisations that that worked with these populations of young people because we can't pretend to necessarily be able to represent everybody. So we worked a lot with Minus 18, which is a group here, which caters for young LGBTQIA plus young people. They're based here in Melbourne and, and they were fantastic partners along the way. And we did several co-design workshops with them to co-design and co-create some content that was, as I say, co-designed by young people from that community and felt that it was meeting the needs of, of LGBTQIA plus young people. And we'll repeat that again in this next iteration of co-design activities we're about to go into. We also partnered up with Headspace and did some bespoke co-design workshops with them, including with young people from South Sudanese communities, which was a big sector of the population in one of the regions that we were working with Headspace in. And, you know, there were some fantastic, you know, really insightful comments that were made by many of the young people, because as you rightly say, Victoria, you know, there's different levels of kind of stigma associated with mental health and so talking about mental health and suicide in different communities. And for many young people, it's just not, they're not able to talk about suicide or mental ill health at home with their families because of the stigma, because of the taboo that's associated with it. So the online environment became even more important to them. So we really felt it was important to kind of generate some content that was going to speak to them. We also did some work with some Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander groups and ran a bespoke co-design workshop with that population we did that over in Western Australia in the early days and co-developed and co-created some specific content for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people. We did give it a go. I think we could have done a better job of it. And we're now at the point of we're just literally about to relaunch a whole series of co-design workshops. And again, we've been developing these partnerships along the way. So I'm hoping we'll be able to have stronger representation, I think, in the next iteration of the content but we did, one of the things that we heard from young people was that they wanted to feel visible in the content. So we did really work hard to try and make that so for them. Asking, thinking about this globally, it really did present some challenges. So when we started the global work, we almost kind of, we didn't quite start the whole Delphi process again because we didn't quite have the resource or the, or the stomach for it really. But what we did do was a whole suite of consultation activities with stakeholders from around the world to look at what they, to what extent they thought the current guidelines met the needs of their community, what they felt was redundant in our current guidelines and what they felt was missing. So we did that in a couple of different ways, but we did some roundtable conversations with sector uh, professionals from around the world. And we did that with, and we also did some surveys so that we could reach more people, including some young people. We were a bit limited in terms of how much we could change the guidelines because of the evidence base that sat behind them. But we were able to, to make some kind of language adjustments and, and things like that. You know, one of the interesting things that those consultations threw up was, you know, particularly for countries where suicide's not legal. Um, because one of the things that we talk about in the guidelines is, you know, if you're worried that somebody's making a suicide attempt, contact triple zero, which is our emergency services number, and call emergency services and somebody will be able to come out and help. And there were people saying to me, colleagues of mine from around the world that said, you couldn't possibly do that in our country. You know, some countries were saying the emergency services just uh, wouldn't come. And others were saying that suicide's not legal and nobody would consider doing that because of the ramifications 
if somebody had made a suicide attempt. So it was really very poignant for us, actually, to think about, you know, well, how do we adapt these guidelines to meet the needs of people in those communities? Again, I think we probably haven't done a brilliant job of it. We could do better. We've just, again, with the second edition of the guidelines, so we did publish the second edition of the ChatSafe guidelines earlier on this year. And we, again, got some funding from Meta to do some translation work not specifically for the basic guidelines this time, but for the parent and family resource. And in there, one of the ways we got around this problem was we had to keep the basics of the resource of the guidelines fairly true to the, again, the evidence base. But we were able to put in, and we've we done this series of roundtables with colleagues from around the world, and, and they brought families and carers together. We then provided an extra little supplementary resource for each region saying, this is what we heard from your community. This is what we heard in your region. Here are some specific issues and here are some specific solutions that your community's generated. So we sort of tried to get around it that way. But it's hard. You know, it, it's kind of hard to develop an intervention that can be delivered and disseminated at scale and at the same time can meet the needs of everybody <laughs> across a community. So we kind of really found ourselves in that kind of conundrum, I guess. It just strikes me as you've described the approach, you've been quite sort of cautious, pragmatic. You sort of built it up, learned as you've gone. And I love the fact that you've worked with intermediaries. That's what I found is, is absolutely critical when you're working with particular groups that might be more vulnerable or marginalised is who's already got the relationships and how can you work with them that also recompenses them for their time and commitment to engage with those groups of people rather than trying to do it directly yourself. Joe, you've mentioned a few times, and maybe this is slightly outside of your remit, but you've mentioned services and pointing people to get the right support. Now, in the UK, we've got a crisis of mental health services for young people, hugely long waiting lists, rising demand for mental health services for all sorts of different reasons, you know, austerity, the pandemic and so on. I just wonder where you think the tension lies around encouraging people to talk more about mental health, to talk more about suicide, encouraging people to seek support, and then potentially the support not being there in the way that they might need. Or they might have a very different experience from the, the way that you framed and talked about these sorts of issues with young people. What's yeah. been your experience there? Yeah, I think this is, it's critical. And we spend a lot of time talking about this. We love nothing more than a mental health literacy and awareness campaign in Australia. And our previous government, who were in power for, for 10 years or so, loved funding these sorts of things. And all of us that were working across the sector were sort of saying, hang on a second, you can't just keep funding awareness and education campaigns, promote help seeking if you're not going to invest in the services so that when people do seek help, they can get the care that they need. And we've done a lot of work outside of ChatSafe, we've done a lot of work with clinical services. We've done a lot of work with emergency departments who really often are the front line of people, you know, young people presenting or people across the age range presenting with self-harm or suicide risk and not being able to get the care that they need. So I think it is a real challenge. And certainly in some of the other work that we've done, one of my team actually did a fantastic piece of work last year where she was interviewing young people who'd used social media co to communicate about self-harm and asked them, you know, why, what social media had provided for them. And many of them talked about the fact that they did this because they'd had bad experiences seeking help. So they didn't want to go to healthcare services to talk about that self-harm. They went online and that was the reason they were being kind of driven online, if you like, because they couldn't get care in their offline worlds. And so I think it's a real challenge and there's a real gap. So we also have significant problems here in Australia 
with access to healthcare for all of the same sort of reasons, I think, that you do in the UK. I'd say that the problems that we've had predate the pandemic, to be perfectly honest. I think that, you know, we've been seeing rising rates of suicide and self-harm and mental ill health in young people for some years now. And the pandemic certainly exacerbated it and shone a spotlight on it. But I think, you know, the problems probably predated. I agree there's a real tension between pointing people in the direction of services without the commensurate investment in services so that services can meet their needs. And I think we just have to tackle this problem in a few different ways all at the same time. So I wouldn't by any means profess that social media and delivering tools or interventions or psychoeducation through social media is a replacement for clinical care. I think it could certainly be a soft entry point into clinical services. You know, we've so we've we've shown that the chat safe type intervention is sort of safe and acceptable. It can reach lots and lots of young people quite quickly. If it can reach some of those young people who are at risk and help them get the help that they need, then surely that's a good thing. But we absolutely also need that investment in our, our specialist mental health care services, in our primary care systems, you know, all those other kind of points of contact that young people have so that when they do seek help, they get the response that they need. Yeah, I guess these sorts of programmes mustn't let governments off the hook for investing in the support that young people need when they do ask, you know, need to seek professional help. Before we finish, Joe, we're coming to the end of our time, but I know that you've recently done a systematic review looking at uh, prevention strategies and social media. Could you, I know there's lots in there, but could you just give us maybe a a flavour of of what you found in your review of the evidence on this topic? But the systematic review we did actually was some time ago and it kind of underpinned a lot of the work that we've been talking about. So it kind of was a little bit of a prequel, if you like, to some of this work. And we're in the process of updating it right now. So, but what it did find was that there wasn't, first of all, I'll say there wasn't a lot of research that was really looking at the ways that social media could be used as a preventative tool. So there was a gap. That's, you know, that was the first thing that we identified. We also identified that, you know, it was social media provided an important environment in that it was perceived to be non-stigmatizing. It was perceived to be more accessible. And the other thing that we found was that young people reported that they found it beneficial and helpful to share their experiences online, but they also found it beneficial and helpful to help others. And that was therapeutic in and of itself. So it was perceived to be a more democratic environment, I suppose, than seeking help from professionals. What I'll also say is when we did that systematic review, I think we ended up, now I did write some numbers down here because I'm not very good with numbers. But when we did the original systematic review, it was back in 2014, and we identified just under 650 articles that were retrieved by our search. And we pulled the full text to look at about 86 of them. And we ended up with 30 studies included, none of which were intervention studies. So at that point, no teams, no one was actually using social media as a way of delivering or testing a suicide prevention intervention. We're in the process of doing that now. So I haven't got too many findings for you. But what I can tell you is that the team identified over 9,000 articles this time. They're pulling the full text of 240 of them. And they found several interventions. So there's lots of interventions. Some of them, obviously, are the things that we've been doing. But there are other groups now around the world that are starting to look at the way that social media might be able to be used to deliver brief interventions to point people to care 
And also, and this is something that's probably for a whole other conversation, Victoria, but they've found a lot of studies that are using AI. So, you know, using different types of artificial intelligence to either identify people at risk or to push interventions towards people who might be at risk. So I think there's a real element of kind of watch this space. I think the field's probably moved on heaps in the kind of the nine years since we did that original study. So I'm kind of excited to see what they might find. Yeah, that's fascinating, actually, because there's also a whole load of chatbots, aren't there? AI-driven chatbots helping young people talk about these sorts of issues. And I guess there's a whole ton of ethical and safety issues associated with them, but the world's moving very quickly in terms of the technology. I think health services' ability to absorb and work with those technologies is probably a lot more limited, and that's where one of the constraints is. But yeah, there's a bit of a a watch this space. It's moving very fast. Um, Joe, thank you so much for joining me. Before we finish, could you just give us a sense of what's happening next? So what's next for ChatSafe? What's next for your research around suicide? What should we be looking out for? Yeah, absolutely. So as I say, we're running a trial at the moment. So that will all be wrapped up by the very beginning of next year, I think which is exciting. We've also got a whole program of work that's now taking ChatSafe into schools. So we realized quite quickly that the majority of young people that we've been working with are a little bit older, and we very much need to be getting into um, schools and working with um, younger young people who need this psychoeducation and this kind of digital literacy more than ever before. So we're doing a whole program of work around that with ChatSafe. And we're also now using ChatSafe. We've partnered up with the Departments of Health in different parts of Australia and New Zealand. And we're now rolling out ChatSafe campaigns as part of a postvention response when a suicide of a young person does occur. So it's not just research that's sitting gathering dust on the shelves. It's actually now being used in, in the real world, hopefully, to help young people have safer communications and save lives. The other couple of things that we've been doing... Uh, we've also been doing work with policymakers and the industry themselves. So ChatSafe's very much been about equipping young people to keep themselves and their friends safe online. But I think we'd probably all agree that the onus for online safety shouldn't just lie with young people. I think there's a point about giving them knowledge and equipping them and empowering them. But we also, as you rightly say, shouldn't be letting other people off the hook. So we've been doing some work looking at, well, what do the the sector, what do young people think that the industry should be doing to improve online safety on their platforms? And what do they think policymakers and governments should be doing around online safety when it comes to suicide prevention? So we're in the process of pulling all of that, those findings together, and we will be releasing some guidance both to the industry and to policymakers um, early in the new year that's based on those findings. So again, watch this space. Thank you so much, Joe. It's been an absolute pleasure to have this conversation with you today and uh, looking forward to hearing how things develop. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Digital Ecology Podcast. Please like, subscribe and review via the usual channels. My book Towards a Digital Health Ecology is available via Amazon and you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn and Medium at Victoria Betton.